0: Like We're back after a couple of weeks uh, for the Jewish High Holidays that we were in a hiatus. We're back with the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. I'm here with my co-host, Gotti Taub. Hey, Gotti.
1: Every time you say it's Carolyn Glick, you look like you're surprised that it's Carolyn Glick. Like you didn't expect it.
0: Well, I, I, well
1: I, it's a different thing if you don't expect me, but you. Well, Look, uh, I, it's because here. it's not
0: my married name. We were just discussing this off camera that my real name is Carolyn Glick Suisa But people would say, who is that? So I am a little bit surprised, you know, <laughs> it's an alias. <laughs> yeah, it's a pen name now. But
1: So how were friends. the holidays?
0: They were good. They were good. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm wearing a sheath because of all of the weight that we've put on with all of the roasts and the chickens and the roasts and the chickens and the honey cakes and the carrot cakes and the apple cakes. But uh, aside from that, um, uh, everything is great and. Uh, the kids were back in school. Now one of the kids is back in school and the other one is back in quarantine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, everybody's we're all we're all good. And uh, I just how saw about this you? video. How were the how were the holidays in Tel Aviv? In,
1: in Tel Aviv? Well, you know, I'm not observant. So I am I am for me, the whole the whole Corona time is very much like the Hagim. It's just everything is quite outside and everything inside um is is much the same. I saw this video about an observant Jew who was trying to explain to someone it's a, it's a, it's a satirical video it's not a real one of, of trying to find a date to meet in September. <laughs> it's like it's absolutely impossible. We had 5 days of of uh, of school Work. in 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 and and but, but also for kids had only 5 days that they went to school this month, right? In September.
0: Something like that. And they still managed to get a hundred thousand of them in quarantine for exposure to COVID. So yeah, it's uh, it, it was very necessary to have, have those at five days or while
1: while time. the press here is celebrating normality. I think normality is is probably the word of the the watchword of the hour here. We are Israel is is probably in its craziest phase ever with the post-Zionist completely we say metula lim it's a, it's a word that that says crazy but is really much more much more forceful and 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 they're they're marketing themselves as as normality so the the school year opens although we've had how many about uh, 1200 unnecessary covid deaths since they wouldn't do anything um and now we are having a normal school year I'm going to teach back in the campus for after almost two years, actually meet students. It's going to be exciting.
0: Yeah, I know. I went to, a, I went to a uh, conference with uh, my, my son's uh, uh, teacher and she's the same teacher that he had last year. And it was the first time that we had ever seen her, you know, outside of zoom. So yeah, it, it, it was quite something, but uh Look, I mean, we are living in crazy times. I just saw that there's a new mutation of Corona that appeared in San Francisco. It was just a headline that I read uh, that says that and and it's completely um, immune to the vaccines. It's uh, it's uh, totally uh, it's like a super Corona that uh, you can get no matter how many boosters you've had or whatever. So I think, unfortunately, that we're never going to get out of this. I mean, it's. I don't want to say it because I think, you know, about our, our kids' future, you know, they won't know life without face masks. You know, we were at the school yesterday and we had to wear the face masks, I, I think I was there for 20 minutes before I figured out an excuse to leave. Um, and it was because I can't stand wearing face masks. I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. I absolutely detest wearing face masks. It's totally, totally uncomfortable for me. And our children have to be in school from eight o'clock in the morning till three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon wearing face masks. I mean, I don't understand that we're talking about first graders, you know, and all all ages in between. And 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 uh I I don't know what sort of uh a joke, this is, but uh, you can't. How, how reliable <laughs> is what
1: you read about San Francisco? Is this still a rumor or is this?
0: It's as reliable as, as everything about Corona. I mean, that's the thing is that people forcefully tell you one thing and then other people, you know, on the other side of the spectrum tell you forcefully everything else. And since the science on all of these things is exactly five minutes old, you can't, you don't know who to trust. You know, it's your experts against the other guys' experts and you don't really have any experts because you never even heard of this stuff 15 minutes ago. And you're stuck trying to figure out what in the world you're supposed to do. And I think that, you know, the the feeling of helplessness and frustration and then trying to rely on the way things were before, you just don't know whether that's reasonable or whether you're going to be endangering your kids. It's hard for people to take care of themselves. It's hard for them to take care of their kids. It's hard for them to know what to do with their parents. I mean, it's, it's all miserable. At any rate, um. Why don't we talk about things that we are experts in? What do you think of that? Because uh, I I don't like talking about things that everybody watching can say, well, I have an opinion, and I'll absolutely put my money on the table that they're worth more than mine. And so why would you listen to Carolyn talking about things that she's not an expert at? Why don't you talk to Carolyn about things that I know very, very well?
1: Like Israeli politics.
0: Like Israeli politics and like anti-Semitism studies 101 in the United States. And I think why don't we start uh, this week's show um, with the extraordinary presentation of where the Democrat Party now stands on Jews and uh, anti-Semites, um, because I think it's it's important. And we saw two very vivid uh, expressions of where the party now stands in relationship to anti-Semitism. The first was with the squads opposition to, uh, uh, supplement of, uh, to uh, funding supplemental funding for Iron Dome missiles, uh, anti-ballistic missile missiles, uh, the missile shield uh, that protects Israel from Hamas missiles, from Islamic Jihad missiles, from Fatah missiles, and from Hezbollah missiles. And then we had that incredible exchange between the Vice President of the United States uh, and a student at George Mason University. And I think both of them are very telling about uh, the state of uh, anti-Semitism in the Democrat Party. Um,
1: can, that- can you say to to our to our viewers in in a nutshell, what it was that that the student and and Kamala Harris we're talking about because well, it was, so they were it actually i think it's goals. important to
0: first start with the iron dome thing because
1: mm-hmm.
0: it it was playing off of that so if we start with the iron dome and then we move to kamala then both of them make more sense so what happened was that you know in may hamas shot off in 10 days four thousand three hundred and sixty missiles that is well, that's rockets mortars and missiles that can reach tel aviv from gaza which is a distance of about what like uh Seventy miles, something like that. yep. so um, these are this is significant. This is over four hundred missiles a day being shot at Israel from Gaza. And um, Israel uh, has this iron dome program together with the United States. It's a joint israeli u s. program. Most of the technology is Israeli, um, and the uh, manufacturing is in the United States. And these are this is a completely defensive project that a lot of Israelis, including myself, really oppose on a philosophical level because by having it, it enables uh, the government not to make any strategic decisions about what we're supposed to do vis-a-vis Gaza. And also it leaves them immune from Israeli offensive attacks because why would we go on offense against Hamas or Hezbollah for that matter, when we can just protect ourselves with these uh, missile shields so they get to, develop hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of missiles to shoot uh, to, to saturate and saturate the system to saturate the system and then we spend and each you know each mortar that they shoot off at Israel costs you know like somewhere between fifty and a thousand bucks and each iron dome missile that we shoot back at them costs around seventy five thousand dollars so that the costs here are insane. the amount of money that we have to put into these anti rocket missiles, and et cetera, it would be much cheaper uh, economically and more effective militarily if we were at least to combine our defensive operations with offensive ones. But be that as it may, that's why Democrats should really like and do, in fact, like, along with the Israeli left, the Iron Dome system, because it it immunizes Israel's uh, terrorist enemies from, from Israeli offenses. Because why should Israel attack Hamas when it can just protect itself with Iron Dome? At any rate... Uh, just sort of showing their hand with incredible animosity towards Israel. The squad led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that they didn't want to vote for that they would not vote for um, the omnibus spending bill, which is like a continuing resolution for the for the budget in the United States that's supposed to uh, uh, keep the federal government open. And so the idea was to put these billion dollars that President Biden had pledged to Israel to replenish the supply of the missiles that Israel had had to shoot in order to protect its population centers. in in May that they weren't going to vote for because they didn't want to support Israel. And really by saying we're not going to support Iron Dome, uh, which, again, is just I mean, people like myself don't like it because it forces Israel into a defensive posture against Hamas. Um, this is this is a they're saying we actually don't want Israel to be able to defend itself against Hamas's missile attacks. We want more Israelis to die. We are for Palestinian terrorists. We are for these jihadists, this Muslim Brotherhood terrorist organization, as it carries out indiscriminate missile warfare against Jews. And that's what they said. Right. That 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 was their message. We won't fund uh, uh, the replenishment of the stocks of these defensive missiles. OK. Um, And you might have expected people who are traditionally pro-Israel, like Steny Hoyer, who is the majority leader in the House of Democrats, or Nancy Pelosi, uh, to stand up to them and say, you should be ashamed of yourself. You know, this is completely uh, outrageous. How can you not support Iron Dome? No, this won't stand. And condemn them or censure them or whatever, make them pay some sort of a price publicly for actively siding with Hamas and their missile war against Israel, but instead we got complete silence on that. Steny Hoyer spoke with Foreign Minister Yair Lapid and said this is really just a technical problem. There's nothing to it. We're gonna What we're going to do is we're going to put it in a separate bill. We're not going to do it with the uh, omnibus budget bill. We're just going to put it in a separate. Now why did they want to do that? Because the Republicans support supplemental funding for Iron Dome, right? So Then they didn't have to worry. There's only a three. So that's the other thing that I guess I have to explain is that they weren't going to get any Republican votes for the supplemental budget deal because it includes, uh, you know, a bazillion dollars, literally, in funding uh, social programs that are socialist. And so the Republicans. But I heard the
1: Democrats say that it's not going to cost money. Did you hear that one?
0: Yeah, but that was something else. That's their overall infrastructure. The infrastructure
1: bill, bill. bill. the one that three point five trillion, point are going to be free or whatever. Right? Three point five was it?
0: It's three point five trillion. So yeah, you know, because obviously three point five trillion zero, they're about they're the same, right? I mean, what's the difference between three point five trillion and zero? I mean, just three point five trillion. Did, but you, at see, any did rate- you see
1: the Babylon B on that? They had a. They had one one story about a wife coming back home to her husband and and saying to him that her 3.5 trillion shopping spree in the mall is going to cost nothing.
0: (laughs) Exactly, because it's true. It's true. I mean, really, that's that's what that's what democratic economics are all about. You just print more money. The fact that then money is worthless never seems to have occurred to them because. Because history is whatever they say it is. Right. And and they can rewrite it so that they're rewriting history of everything. Why can't they just rewrite history of the 70s inflation or hyperinflation in Germany in the 1930s? I mean, there's no problem at any rate. So the Democrats wanted this big fat spending bill that they weren't going to get any Republican support for. So they needed every single Democrat to vote for it And when you had the nine members or whatever of the squad saying they weren't going to vote for it, then they knew that their budget wouldn't pass and the federal government would shut down. So they said, "Okay, we're going to take it out. They didn't call them out. They didn't they didn't insist that, you know, they didn't bang on the table and say, you have to vote for this. No, they they just took it out because then they said, "Okay, then then we can get the Republicans to vote for it. And so that's what they did. And um, this was not this was a very substantive thing because uh, it said that the Democrats and not for the first time, uh, the leadership: Steny Hoyer, Nancy Pelosi, uh, the head of the foreign relations—I uh, think his name is Meeks—and uh, and other very senior Democrat lawmakers in the House will not call out Cortez or Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib or Ayanna Presley or. Um, Whatever her name is, the woman from uh, Washington State who's ahead of the progressive and, and caucus. what's your
1: what's your take on that dynamic? Why can't they? Why can't they muster the 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 courage, the uh, moral authority to say stop to all the you know they they say so many idiotic things apart from anti-Semitism
0: because because the progressives are the the progressive caucus in the House has. You know, I think it's 85 members and swing state or swing districts, whatever. Centrist Democrats who have to worry about what Republicans think of them—they're only 56 seats like that. So that the balance of power inside of the party is very much uh, uh, in the hands of the progressives, and um, and uh, that progressives themselves are led by the Squad. So that they can't they are the power in the party. And so when people say, well, they're the the minority in the party, they're not the minority in the party, they're the majority in the party. They control the party. And so I think, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and all of the rest of these oxygenarians who are the heads of the party today, including Biden, are afraid of them because they are the power behind the throne. And if they if they start going after them, Then they won't have. Then, then they're going to risk their leadership positions. I mean, uh, Nancy Pelosi had to make a deal with the Squad in order to get reelected Speaker of the House. So I think, you know, in in twenty eighteen. So I think I think that this is very much uh, an issue of the balance of power in the party. So, but isn't it also
1: an issue of, and and we see this happening in Israel and elsewhere that you you know radicals get to be. The, the judges, they, they get to be the moral authority because of their alleged purity, because they take things to extreme. And so there's a dynamic, and we, we saw this on the Israeli left, of everybody, you know, these who are, those who are still Zionists are like, looking aside to get a nod from the, from the post-Zionists that they are radical enough, that their moral credentials are are, are weighty enough. Is that not part of the dynamic there?
0: Well, I think that you get that dynamic. Uh, you know, it's very much it's very it's much easier to be a purist than to be a centrist. Right. I mean, that's true, probably on the right as well. But I think, you know, here the the problem is, first of all, the power dynamic that the progressives really have captured the majority of the uh, of Democratic seats. And I think that um, they're they're very much the power in in the Democrat Party. And that has to be accepted because it's true. Um, and people are trying to hide that. And the other thing is that I think that while there are only, you know, eight or nine members of the progressive caucus who are willing to openly, uh, openly advocate anti-Semitic positions, um, there, I wrote about it in my Israel Hayom article from last Friday that you can see on my. Uh, it's a first article up on my website right now, CarolynGlick.com, that. Um, these ostensibly more sympathetic towards Israel progressives have just put out this bill called the Two State Act or the Two State Solution Act. It's it's sponsored by Andy Levin, who is a J Street uh, guy, uh, Carl Levin's son, actually uh, from Michigan, um, and he's very very radically anti-Israel. And this under the headline Two State Solution. Um, what this bill actually does is it is it guts the U.S. alliance with Israel. It guts Israel's strategic independence in, and uh, undermines U.S. military ties with Israel. And it also um, massively empowers Palestinian terrorists. It enables the Palestinians to continue sponsoring and financing terrorism and at the same time receive U.S. A uh, U.S. financial assistance, and also reopened the PLO office in Washington, and this is all against the 1987 uh, uh, a- anti-terrorism law. So, Andy Levin, this ostensibly pro-Israel, pro-Peace uh, J Street J- Democrat, and 24 co-sponsors, seven of them are actually Jewish Democrats, are pushing this this bill forward um, that would com- that is even more devastating to US-Israel relations and to Israel's strategic position and much more supportive of Palestinian terrorism than we've ever seen before. And they're doing this as progressives so that it's only eight or nine of the progressives that are willing to openly support Palestinian terrorists against Israel and to demonize Jewish Americans who support Israel. But out of a caucus of 85 members, probably you have the majority of them, that are willing, uh, with a very, you know, a small uh, fig leaf hiding them, uh, to push a deeply, deeply pro-Palestinian terrorist agenda against Israel. So Which they uh, are able good. to
1: market to to most American Jews as just and balanced. They're, and they're, pro-Peace. They're, yeah, and they're marketing it as, you know, they're, as if this were... As if this were 1937, and we were with the Peel Commission. It said, you know, there are two national movements here, so it makes sense to give them both um, homelands for for self determination. And it completely, yeah. completely ignored. You know, I was a supporter of of the two state solution until it was d- disproven by facts. And this is, and, and, and if you look at the American press, if you look at the New York Times, for instance, they're still selling this as if it were really possible after all we've learned about the the Palestinian national movement. And Shlomo Avineri of the Israeli left wrote, I think it was two or three years ago, that that, that Zionism kept seeing the Palestinian national movement in its own image and imagined that the Palestinian national movement, too, seeks political self-determination. And it doesn't seek that. It seeks territorial... Resettlement of the descendants of the refugees, which means the destruction of Israel. I, I don't know if you saw Memory today. Memory, the Middle East Research, Media Research Institute, they published that the Hamas in Gaza had a conference about how things should be run after Palestine is liberated from the Jews, after the destruction of Israel, and it had a whole, a whole. Uh, uh, Series of clauses saying how how would they deal with the Jews? So uh, the Jews who are warriors would be uh, self evidently killed. Others who wish to run away, depending, some should be let um, let go, and others should be brought to justice. And it said we should uh, forcefully keep all the the brain trust. Of the Jews, people who are good in agriculture, technical thing, medicine, technical things, medicine, and all that should be forcefully uh, made to remain in Palestine. So, so they're saying it. The, the the Hamas covenant, which they now hide, calls for the murder of every Jew. the The, the Palestinians have never agreed to. Any sort of partition and the the New York Times and and, and following it in in America, the hierarchy is much stronger than it is, I think, here. And everyone follows it, like the whole press in America follows the lead of this thing as if this is still a viable option. It is not a viable option. Read Adi Schwartz and Inat Vilf, The War of Return, and you would see that the Palestinian national movement centers around the destruction of Israel, not around its own independence.
0: Right, and you know, you're you're speaking to something, that I also talked about um, in my article last week, which is that you know there is this theoretical ideal of a two-state solution that was the animating force behind the Israeli peace camp, right, behind people like yourself, where you have this idea that you know there are two the sides, people like
1: I used to be, yeah,
0: right, but but that you're trying. To reach some kind of a compromise, right? And so, uh, and Shlomo Ben-Ami talks about this as well that there would be some line that they would accept, right? That you know, okay, uh, the ideal for for Zionist Israeli leftists when they talk about uh, the two state solution is probably you know along the lines of what Sipi Livni was talking about in two thousand and eight when she was having these negotiations with Abu Mazen and with and with and with Condoleezza Rice, um, which is that. Israel would keep the major, you know, uh, major Jewish population centers in Judea and Samaria, where I live, in Gush Etzion, the city of Ariel, some other places that would all, you know, kind of, and Barack also talked about this at Camp David in 2000, they all add up to around you know, 5% of Judea and Sumeria, And we would, you know, in larger versions of it, we would we would maintain our control over the Jordan Valley and more limited ones. We would have some sort of condominium of interest there. But the whole idea was that how, and, and Jerusalem, they would reach some kind of administrative uh, solution there. So there's this idea that we could reach a deal Um, But the Palestinians were never party to that, and they never agreed to that. There was never any Palestinian constituency for that. There was never any Palestinian leadership that would have supported that. So it was all kind of in our heads that we were telling ourselves that this existed because we wanted it to exist. And we projected our own logic and our own rationale on the other side and never listened to them. And, you know, the main argument of people on the right, like myself, was that, you know, You can't do this because you're not listening to them. You're not negotiating with them. You're negotiating with yourself. But that's not how it works because the whole idea of a two-state solution is predicated on resolving the conflict. And, you know, what Barack, what E.O. Barack called the final resolution of the conflict. We were going to reach a final resolution. It was going to be a peace treaty. There was going to be a peace. The Palestinians never accepted this. They never agreed to this. It was never part of their lexicon it was all it was all it was all just Jews talking to each other and so you know and and even today still today you know they Shkaki came out just in time for my column with a with an opinion poll of the palestinians 62% of them opposed the two state solution and and nobody even defined it for them right they just said no and and fifty four percent of them support armed struggle, which means a terrorist war against Israel. So you know this is this is what they say, and it's and they've always said this. And 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 the people who support the two state solution in Israel still today suffer from the exact same problem that they had in the nineteen nineties, which is that they simply weren't listening to the Palestinians. They weren't, you know. And and and, and they have
1: this. They have this. Uh... When you, when, when you mention this, they say, oh, that's what they say for internal propaganda reasons. That's not the truth. That's what they right. say. When
0: has anybody made excuses like this for the other side? They won't make any excuses, of course, for people who actually take them seriously.
1: And what kind of excuse is it if you say that this is what you say to get elected among the Precisely. Palestinians? If that's what you have to say to get elected, then what this does is what mean? the Palestinians want.
0: No, and they don't want to listen. You know, they simply don't want to listen. And even, you know, and I always go back to the stories, you know, I don't even like to talk about it, but I probably should more. So, you know, when I was in the talks, we, one of the chief uh, Palestinian interlocutors was this guy named Muhammad Dahlan, was the head of the security forces in the Gaza Strip. And, uh, you know, he was very cool. He was urbane. He spoke pidgin Hebrew. We had spent many years in Israeli prison and terrorism charges. And um, and so he all of the Israelis loved him because they thought that since he like the generals, they thought that since he had Hebrew, that he was on our side. But while he was negotiating with us, he was also Yasser Arafat's conduit to the head of Hamas, Muhammad. Uh, um, was not Muhammad? Def, it was. It,
1: it was uh, no, it was. The, the the spiritual head was uh, Yassin and then, no it was uh,
0: muhammad def it was muhammad def it was hmm. when it was it was muhammad def they were hmm. in prison together and they were friends so it was dakhlan and def were good friends and this was in the 1990s it was 1994 and he was the interlocutor between arafat and Yassin. he and def so this should tell you everything that you need to know about Muhammad Dahlan, that he was that he became very close friends with the head of Hamas while he was in Israeli prison, learning pidgin Hebrew, right? And but instead of focusing on that, which was the most important thing to understand about Dahlan, the Israeli negotiators focused on the pidgin Hebrew, which was the least important thing to recognize because you had to put it into context. Why did he speak Hebrew? He spoke Hebrew because he was in an Israeli prison. Why was he in an Israeli prison? Because he was a terrorist. Right. And so these kinds of things were never were never the focus because the Israeli negotiators wanted to believe that Muhammad Dahlan was our friend and he totally was not. He was completely not the, the you know, right at the same time that he was meeting with us, he was meeting with the, with Def and they worked out a modus operandi between Fatah and Hamas. Um, that Hamas would only carry out terrorist attacks in areas that the Palestinian Authority didn't govern, okay, so that they wouldn't get in trouble. And then, you know, followed that was Nachshon Vaxman, an IDF corporal, his kidnapping and murder at the hands of Hamas in Bir Nabala, which is a suburb of Ramallah, and a whole bunch of suicide bombings inside of Israel. And And people didn't want to make the connection. I'm talking about the Israeli leadership did not want to make the connection between Muhammad Dahlan, their pal in the negotiations who spoke pidgin Hebrew and the terrorist attacks that were taking place at the hands of Dahlan's former prison friend and interlocutor, Muhammad Def. And so that's how deep the denial went. At any rate, you know, at this point for the vast majority of Israelis, um this is no longer uh, deluding themselves into believing that there's a possibility for peace with the Palestinian authority with Fatah obviously with Hamas is no longer an option of course nobody told anybody in our government about that but still <clears throat> that is that is a sense of the israeli public and in the united states on the other hand going back to the democrat party so they realize that's the thing about andy levin's bill and the thing about the op- opposition to Iron Dome that's so telling, right? Because they do understand that the two-state solution as a means for peace, the way that Israeli peaceniks viewed it all along is, not, is a non-starter. And so it's very notable that his two-state solution act with 24 co-sponsors, seven of whom are also Jewish, right? So eight, a third of the co-sponsors are Jewish Democrats. It's very telling that their two state solution act is simply about opposing Israel and supporting Palestinian terrorism against Israel, because that means that the progressives in the United States have internalized the Palestinian perception of the two state solution, because to the extent that you have Palestinian support for the two state solution, like ostensibly you had from Yasser Arafat in 1993, it's not as a means to an end, it's not the way that people like Shimon Peres and others promised or Yossi Balin, that this was going to lead to a resolution of the Palestinian conflict with Israel into peace. No, no, no. For them, this is a stepping stone. Just as they pocketed the Gaza Strip after Israel left in 2005, and they used it to improve their bases for conducting further warfare against Israel, right? Now they can shoot mortars not only at Gush Katif, which no longer exists, the Israeli settlement area inside of Gaza that was destroyed by Israel when we left in 2005, and at wrote and other border towns, they can shoot all the way. To Jerusalem from Gaza. They can shoot all the way to Tel Aviv. They can even shoot to Khadera, which is, you know, on the way to the north. They, they have over 5 million Israelis now in range of their rockets and their missiles from Gaza. So they use the concession to pocket it. And moreover, Hamas now in the last round of war, not only did he did, did they Attack Israel directly from Gaza, but they did something that was unprecedented, which was that they openly colluded with their Israeli Arab supporters, who worked as a fifth, um, what is it oh. called, a fifth column inside of Israel, uh, uh, and 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 uh, carried out pogroms and riots against Israelis. Uh, in mixed Jewish-Arab towns and on the highways uh, to impede military operations, which was a sign of things to come. So, you know, th- their idea is that if Israel withdraws from Judea and Sumerian parts of Jerusalem in, in, the, in the framework of a two-state solution along the lines that Levin and his comrades in the Progressive Caucus lay out in their bill, then they'll be able to use all of the areas, my house and Efrat, everywhere else to attack, what's left of israel and not only are they going to do that but the now people who now call themselves palestinians the israeli arabs right they're going to join the fight so that the center of gravity is going to move to the galilee and to the negev um and 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 to the coastal plain where you have mixed israeli arab communities um and and their expectation is that the battle is going to be joined by them in a very major way so this is this is really the, the the end point of this two state solution for the Palestinians, as you said. It's not just a law of, you know, not just a right of return, so-called, which is unlimited foreign Arab immigration into Israel. It's Israel being overrun by its own Arab citizens along with the Palestinians in their areas that Israel I, withdraws from. I
1: have a, a a growing dark foreboding about the future of relations inside Israel. I think that we if we don't wake up soon, we are heading into something that can escalate into a into a full civil war between Jews and Arabs, something that can be worse than the the, the 1930s. Um because w- what we've seen here in Israel is we're we're pogroms in May. These were right. pogroms, were pogroms. Were pogroms. And, and the media completely denied it. They said violence on both sides is what they call it. And, and the result is that, that those who who initiated and participated in the programs have learned the lesson that the Jewish state would not protect itself. So I think they are being emboldened now by this progressive government with a, with a little kippah at the top, um, which is denying all these things and talking about violence among, in the Arab sector As if this is just a problem of crime and not just a problem of a collapse of state authority and sovereignty, the the result would be that these people will be emboldened. They have a lot of illegal weapons, which the state is too chicken to even begin uh, collecting, And they've the lesson they've learned and what they internalized since we're living in this rough neighborhood is that there is there is no one at home um, and and they can do what they want and, and and the next wave may be far more violent and including including much more. Uh, um, uh, firearms.
0: So oh, I agree with you. I agree on. with you completely. I do want to go back for a second to the United States, because I think it's important. And we have a lot of audience members who are who are in the United States and i And, and so, you know, the Iron Dome that we were just talking to, and then we explain what the actual meaning of the two state solution is when they talk about it. Now they're not talking about the pie in the sky view of the Israeli left and their fantasy version of the two-state solution. They're talking about something else. They're talking about the Arab view of the two-state solution, which is a means to annihilate the Jewish state. And so that I think is, is the most important thing. And this is what the progressives are supporting both by opposing you know, the, the supplemental funding for Iron Dome, but also in their own ideal for what an American policy towards Israel and the Palestinians would be, which is complete American support for Palestinian terrorists and no American support uh, for Israel, um, and and I think that that's important. People should take a you know deep dive in. Well, I mean, obviously you should read my column, which sort of summarizes the Levin bill, but it's also worth looking at the Levin bill. I read the whole thing, and and it's really and it's really alarming because it shows where the per- progressives really are today, and they're very hateful very hateful of Israel and very, very supportive of Palestinian terrorism against Israel and Palestinian terrorist organizations. Um, And then that brings us to Kamala Harris. And like I said, you can't really, I mean, you can, but it's good to get this context for what then just happened to her last week uh, at George Mason. And actually my colleagues from the Center for Security Policy, uh, Victoria Coates wrote, uh, co-wrote a column about this with Congressman Chip Roy. Uh, that just appeared in Newsweek today, I'll be posting that on Twitter and on Facebook later today. But, um, you know, she she was going there to, I don't know, have some sort of powwow with uh, with the students. And uh, this female student said to her um, that it it hurts her heart that the that the Congress just passed this uh, this um, uh, bill supporting Israel because Israel is committing ethnic genocide. And uh, and by the way, she said ethnic genocide just like America did. So not only is Israel committing genocide, but America is a genocidal power. And I think that that bears discussion. And I'll actually be talking about that a bit in my column for the weekend for uh, Israel. But uh, so that, last that's week amazing how,
1: how progressives the world over and especially in the United States are willing instead of beating their own chest to purify their conscience are always willing to beat the chest of the Jewish state. Their anti-Semitism has become now a means for cleansing your conscience about your own sins. It's, it's, it's mind boggling how a form of racism has become for these people, a form of absolving themselves from racism.
0: You're right. So what she said was, um, you know, um, let me just give you the exact quote because I think it's it's worth noting. She said here, uh, uh, just a few days ago, there were funds allocated to continue backing Israel, which hurts my heart because it's an ethnic genocide and it's the same thing that happened in America. And then Harris says to her, that she was glad that the student, you know, shared her views. I, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but at Clinton in 1992, when he was first running for office, he first running for president. He had what everybody referred to as his sister soldier movement, which is where he was speaking to a African-American audience. I think in Harlem and this woman, you know, said something very hateful about. America or white people. I don't even remember what it just known as a sister soldier movement a moment when when Clinton stood up to her and called her out for being a bigot. And it was a very big deal uh, on his road to the Democrat nomination and and on the presidency because it, it pre- presented him as a moderate Democrat. At any rate, you know, uh, so Kamala Harris did not have her sister soldier movement with her with her party's bigoted um, you know, wing of progressives. Instead, she said, you know, she was glad that she shared her views, and then she said, "quote This is about the fact that your voice, your perspective, your experience, your truth should not be suppressed. Okay, it should not be suppressed." Now, imagine if uh, the 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 woman had the teach the the student had said to her, "Look, you know, uh, it hurts my heart that." Uh, the American embassies abroad are 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 uh, posting rainbow flags, because I think, you know, particularly trans, you know, transgenders, I think that they're sexually deviant and that they should be kept away from children. You know, can you imagine Kamala Harris saying to her, you know, this is about your truth, you know, and it's important that you express your truth and your feelings. Oh, oh, these Um,
1: people. And I think we 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 discussed this, I don't know if we'll have time for it here, but these people are willing to employ the police in order to shut down uh, politically incorrect um, um, ideas. Now that maybe we'll talk about it later, as I said, uh, the the, the FBI is going to be mobilized against parents protesting critical race theory in schools. And they're always portraying themselves as pluralistic, but of course they're willing to listen only to one kind of voice. And there's a a philosophical level to it also, because it it all rests on what is this idea that you have the right to your own truth. This is a postmodern paradigm in which there is no truth. And then there are only opinions. And what this always means everywhere, once you let go of the idea of truth, there is only force. Read Foucault. He supports it, but 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 nevertheless says something very revealing. If there is no objective reality, then you only have force to decide issues, and this is the this is the thing they grew up on. They were nurtured on in the universities, and now they've reached the final. Nietzschean conclusion that force will be the arbiter of ideas, and they're willing to use it to shut down everyone. All this under this rainbow talk of we're more pluralistic because everyone has their own truth. After everyone has their own truth, the state has its own truth, and then the state's truth is what they're going to enforce.
0: Exactly. I mean, and and it's totally antithetical to the very notion that, you know, all of the founding ideas that the United States was actually based on rather than slavery, which it was not based on. Right. Everything was based upon this idea of limited government, of 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 citizens being able to go out and fight it out in the in the marketplace of ideas freely. And um, and sell their wares. And here they're saying no marketplace of ideas. We're shutting you down. We're going to go after mommies and daddies who don't want their children to be indoctrinated in public schools into believing that, you know, certain races are better than the others. And if you're whitey, you know, well, then you should really be careful, especially if you're a boy and especially if you're a boy who doesn't like to wear dresses. Right. And God forbid likes to play with play guns. So you know, all of these things are happening right now in the United States. And here's the vice president saying to and an anti-Semitic. I mean, the Senate State Department's definition of anti-Semitism includes uh, uh, accusing Israel of genocide as an example of contemporary anti-Semitism. Right. And and I think it's notable and I think it's important to note. And and um, and, and uh, I said it last week on, on television here. You know that th- she made this statement on the 80th anniversary of the massacre of Jews at Babiar, right? where you had thirty seven thousand Jews murdered in, in the space of what, a couple of days. They're just shot into open pits in the largest mass grave in 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 world history, I think. And here she is ex- ac- accusing Israel of doing that, of, of being of being Nazi Germany, of committing ethnic genocide. She's is a total falsity. And the vice president of the United States of America says to her, Oh, it's I'm glad you shared your truth with me. This is this is you know, this is far worse than what I remember, whatever unmemorable thing that Sister Soul just said to uh, then candidate Clinton. And here's Vice President Kamala Harris. And so what does this tell us about, you know, just to just to sort of square this circle or, or whatever. And this end this thing is that. What does it tell us about where the Democrat Party is on anti-Semitism? I and mean, she should have called her out, right? She should have said, how dare you say such a despicable thing, first of all, about your own country, the United States, and second of all, about our closest ally, Israel, the Middle East, the only democracy in the Middle East and our most stable strategic ally because they share our values and our interests. You know, how dare you say these things It's a total lie. You're projecting what the Palestinians are onto their victims, the Jews. But instead of doing that, she said, oh, we're so pleased that you shared your truth. Why would she do that?
1: Uh, You know, know, I think my, my last comment on this is that that Kamala Harris is, you know, she's, I guess, saying that she's an intellectual lightweight is Way is is a great understatement. So she's kind of a bellwether. Um, I don't think she under she would understand anything that we've we, we we've we've said about all the different levels of this. Um, but 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 because she's such a bellwether, she 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 expresses the instinctive, uh, what is now considered the common sense, the, uh, the 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 middle of the road, democratic. Uh, spirit, so these people so it's it's no longer valid to talk about the squad as as the far wing because they're dictating the, the the spirit to such an extent that when Kamala Harris is forced to react on the spot to something like this, this is what comes out of their mouth. this is instinctively, and I think judging by the way she 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 phrased herself, I think she at least. Understood that there was a th- th- that it was a sensitive issue coming up. And she tried to say what's safe, something that is safe. And this is what seems to her to be safe to say.
0: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know whether she's intelligent or not, and I don't want to comment on that. She is a bellwether, though. I mean, when she was in the Senate, she had great ratings with APAC. You know, she was just like everybody else, she'd vote. Uh, 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 for uh, military assistance to Israel and all the rest of it. And uh, she had a good rating and she came to APEC, And then when that started going out of style, she stopped going to APEC, and she started going to J Street and all the rest of it. And I think that you're right. I think that she is giving a sense of things. But I also think, you know, again, it goes back to Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer covering for the anti-Semitism of the of the squad, and then Andy Levin serving as a fig leaf to push forward with a full-blown plan to to screw Israel completely and to side 100 percent with Palestinian terrorists against Israel or to the limit allowed by U.S. law, um, and and uh, you know and you and you see these actions being taken by the progressives who again really do control the party today. Uh, to a large degree, I think it was uh, Gerald Seeb uh, wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal. I, I read uh, the other day when he was saying there is no center anymore because of the way that districts have been gerrymandered uh, by state legislators. Legislatures, so you see that there are very, very few. The number of swing districts had gone down by more than fifty percent since 1997, and and so people live in these these bubbles uh that uh, don't enable any ideological compromise and the people who get to decide what's going to happen or what isn't going to happen in the party are are the are the are the people who are most uh, decisive and the people who are most decisive are the people who are most radical. And those are the people who are in control of the Democrat Party and they are very anti-Semitic. And so Kamala Harris, who is number two, she's a second highest elected official in the United States of America, she kowtows to them, whether out of agreement, if she cares, if she has any, you know, moral fiber, and this is something that moves her, or more likely, uh, out of either fear or opportunism, because that's, you know, the side that her bread is buttered on. So, you know, I think that this is a very disturbing thing uh, that Israelis and American Jews need to contend with. And I know, you know there are some efforts by some American Jewish uh, organizations to try to fight the anti-Semitism in the Democrat Party. But, you know, it's very it's very tepid and it's very um, uncertain. And unwilling to really go to the mattresses on this. But, you know, if this isn't stopped and it's no longer, it can't be nipped in the butt anymore because it's not, it's full flower now, you know, and it's only going to get, you know, like Jack and the Beanstalk pretty soon. it's going to go up to the sky. Um, and if if they don't start fighting it in a very, very serious, no holds barred way, they're going to be even less uh empowered to defend themselves than they are today. And today they are really being largely disenfranchised, at least in in the Democrat Party. And it and it is a it is a very, very, very disconcerting thing. And 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 so I think, you know, this is this should be the top issue of concern for American Jews. But of course, unfortunately, and in a signal where American Jews themselves are going, uh, you see that uh, it is far from the top uh, issue on their agenda um and and if unfortunately so long as we have this government in israel you're not going to get any leadership from israel on it either
1: yeah um israel has gone i, I i'd say even further uh now at least
0: mm, in know. the government
1: mm. we what do you we mean have, I, I mean that now we have now we have uh, ram in the government
0: right. We
1: have. It's more radical than, than the radical wing of the Democratic Party in terms of internal Israeli affairs, because even the squad will not say about America what Ram would say about Israel. Uh, the, the, this I don't is, know, they say
0: some pretty terrible things about the United States, guys. I, 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 they,
1: they, I don't see that they have a plan to um, annihilate it. Um, although they're going to destroy its, the, the bedrock of its values. But here you have like a, an, an almost declared enemy. This is a, a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood who is now inside the government. So you have a government that is not just um, uh, anti-national, but it is anti-Jewish nationalism in particular. This is, this is a very extreme thing to have these people in the government. And by yeah. the way, Netanyahu also toyed with this idea, which I thought was horrible. But now you have a combination of the Netanyahu wanted to form some kind of partnership for or temporary partnership within a solid right-wing bloc. But the, this is a left-wing government that's leaning in the end. It's like, you know, it, I'll, I'll give you an example what I would consider such a thing in America. If the American Communist Party was part of now... The 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 um, the, uh, the Democratic Party in an overt way. I, I, I mean, let me remind you. I you know I'm not I'm not going to absolve the Democratic Party of all its sins, but it rejected a candidate that said he was socialist. So although not the really? Swatica- mm, they wouldn't have him for a for a presidential candidate.
0: Yeah, but he he didn't. I mean, Bernie Sanders very much is a kingmaker and he determines the policies. I mean, look at the people who Biden is appointing. He made a deal with Bernie's supporters who said you guys are going to get a place at the table. And you look at the Department of Justice and you look at the White House and you look at the State Department and you see that Bernie Sanders supporters and, you know, they are in decision making positions in the Biden administration. And, you know, you have that some person who's now responsible for banking policy in the Treasury, who is a who is a graduate of of a Soviet university and she received the Lenin Award. And I mean, she is an open out and out communist. And now she's in charge of regulating American banks
1: yeah that's that's a pretty ex- extreme example, but still, but there are
0: lots of examples like her,
1: but but mm-hmm. still, would you would you the, uh, the reason I'm finding it hard to make a full comparison is that you don't need a, a coalition uh, government in the American system of government. But suppose you had the Communist party with it with an actual stamp with the actual what do you call them magal magalve patish that you had a hammer, hammer. and a sickle. The hammer and the sickle on the flag inside the government. It's not this I I I I completely agree that there are those. Uh, it would be
0: like the Biden administration having, you know, a, a representative of the Taliban in, in, in yes, the National Security like Council, that. which I would argue that Meyer Bitar is, but whatever.
1: <laughs> um I, I still think there's a there's a line between the subversion. Uh, clandestine subversion, and the actual raising of the flag. But this is really a Talmudic uh, argument. I I don't underestimate the severity of the American case now um, in days when we learned that the FBI is going to be used against parents who protest critical race theory.
0: Look, you know, I think that, uh, you know, in terms of understanding just how horrible, the situation in Israel is all you have to really do is look at um, Naftali Bennett's speech at the U.N. General Assembly, right, because um, he did not represent Israel there. He represented his post Zionist government. He represented himself. We have a prime minister who has no constituents. Um, you know, a poll came out yesterday that said he has four mandates If in new Knesset elections which means that there's literally no way that his party can run. And expect to actually get elected to Knesset. Forget about, you know, becoming prime minister. He he became prime minister with six mandates to his name, which is all of five percent of the seats in the Knesset. So he basically he literally represents nobody. And it was reflected in his speech, because you know here he came to New York, uh, the UN. Uh, uh, gave uh, you know, uh, anchored the, the Iran nuclear deal from 2015 in a security Council resolution and you know that Samantha Power drafted. And the United States is now going into it again or wants to desperately go into it again. So the UN wants to give the goods, ha- good housekeeping seal of approval to a nuclear arsenal for the most profligate sponsor of terrorism in the entire world and a country that's on record with their official policy being that they want to annihilate the Jewish state and, by the way, destroy the United States of America. And this is the policy not only of the United States, but of the majority of members of the U.N. And he didn't say anything against the nuclear deal. And, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu talked about it yesterday at the opening session of the Knesset. But that's a big one. The the week, the day before Bennett spoke, uh, the head of the PLO Mahmoud Abbas uh, gave a, a a speech on, you know, Zoom or whatever, where he issued Israel an ultimatum that we quit all of Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem in the next 12 months or he's going to sue us again at the ICC, at the International Court of Justice at The Hague. And um, Bennett thought that the, you know, the better half of valor was to say nothing about the Palestinians. You know, he was sitting in the most anti-Semitic hall in the entire world of the most powerful anti-Semitic organization in the entire world, the UN. And he said nothing to defend his own country's national interests, our rights to our capital city of Jerusalem, um, nothing. And uh, why did he do that? Because he can't, he a because he represents no one, he has no constituents, and b because if he says anything, then his government will fall.
1: And and it's very telling that you know we have a branch, sort of branch of of the Muslim Brotherhood in our government, yep. and they are banned in Egypt and they are banned in Jordan and in the ban- UAE and they're they're banned around us in Arab countries and and Israel has them inside the government it's it's mind-boggling and this is why i say i think we we are to to an extent in a, in in a worse shape uh, this is not true across the board because i think that the israeli public unlike the american public is much more news conscious and here everything is and uh, has a, a a very strict and severe reality test. We are always the the danger of war and the war coming all the way to your door and all the way to your family, and you have relatives in the army and 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 nobody's nobody can stay away from it when it's there gives us a very strong reality check. So the Israeli public is actually very sober and also, um, uh, a non non radical. I'm looking for the word matun, but I need I, moderate. I, it's it's very moderate, um, and, and so I think we we have a we have a, a serious weight giving balance to the whole system. But now the elites, the press, the courts, and and, and the left the left in in parliament have managed to band together in order to basically. Um, um, Cancel out the the will of the majority. We have we have a right wing public with a with a left wing government, because we have um, this this I don't know this Bernie Madoff who is now our 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 prime minister. There there has no there has never been such a corrupt deal like Naftali Bennett presenting himself as a right wing. As a head of a right-wing party and basically stealing a chunk of the electorate and giving it to the other side, this is nothing like that has ever happened. Some there, there were deserters, there were individual members of of Knesset, but this is, this is like a a, a block um, that that was just stolen. This is a, a political theft, and we're all acting. You know, they say, well, he he. Uh, he uh, backed, uh, backtracked on some of his election promises. This is not ba- backing, backtracking on your election promises. This is stealing a block of voters, stealing it from the voters, stealing it. From the sovereign of a democratic country, which is the citizens, and just giving it like it was a parcel, like it was some commodity to the other side. It's absolutely I know. Crazy. You know, it,
0: it was it was really interesting because uh, I mean, just first of all, one you know, one thing about Bennett, and then I just want to go back for a second to the Muslim Brotherhood issue because we should close down and everything and be serious. This is this is are <clears throat> <hour> and everything. <laughs> but you know, he he, he gave his speech at the opening session of the Knesset on Monday. And, um, and I didn't see the whole speech. Um, I was working, you know, but uh, uh, he, he went off, I saw the clips of it, he went off uh, in his speech against people who tweet against him. Right. And uh and and then you know on Twitter the next day all that just may be
1: me Carolyn right or me or you know and me me me, me. Yeah, it was all too. about me
0: it was all about me <laughs> he was talking about me no but but all of our all of our pals in our little in our little closed intellectual universe and in 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 Twitter in Israel um, they were like look he's reading us he's reading us look you know um, but the thing is is that he he really is. Like he he is reading he because he doesn't have any power. I mean, what else is he going to do? And he cannot stand the fact that he's being forced to pay a price for his for 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 what he did for his heist, for his you know, for his highway robbery of the vote. You know, he cannot stand that he's being held to an to account. And so he's he's lashing out at his voters, he's lashing out at his critics, accusing us of inciting, you know, accusing us of being of being uh, uh, illegitimate, and uh, and and it's an extraordinary thing. He's saying, "I, I, you, I am, I am immune from criticism after I thumbed my nose at you know the foundations of Israel's democracy." And yes, we're a proportional you know, parliamentary system, which is stupid. And there are a lot of real defects in our system. And I think we should have direct election of our prime minister. But, you know, any way you want to look at it, we we have lots of problems. Our system is faulty. But just like the American system, it's all based on this idea of good faith. You know that nobody's going to come in there and pervert the rules and bend them and twist them and break them in such a way that they undermine the entire concept of of our system that nobody ever thought of doing something like this. Yeah, it's illegal, but who would have ever thought of doing something like this? You know, it's just not done. It's that concept of just not done that he and totally- Afghanistan- Bennett
1: Bennett. Said he would not do it. Not just, of course, that, that he cheated everyone. He, he, right, but he what I didn't say saying, that but he said that he will not even try to be prime minister with less, I think, than 20 than 10 or, than 10. or 15. It or started 10. with 20, it went down to 15. Then it went down, down to 15. It went down to no, it went
0: down to 15. But he but he, that everything that he said was a lie, it's true. But I'm saying that the perversion of the system that he that he did, that he undertook, you know, it. It is like it is like uh, Obama started with the executive orders when he said, I have a phone and a pen. Yeah, you do. And you can pass these executive orders. It's true. But, you know, that's not how the system is supposed to work. Right. You're supposed to have to have give and take with Congress. You're not supposed to be able to to rule by presidential fiat. That's just not how things are done in America. And now Biden, of course, is doing it you know, and and with all of these with all of these um, regulations and everything that they pass, none of these things are supposed to be done in America, and they're all being done by the Democrats who are undermining the system by twisting it in ways that the framers of the American Constitution never conceived of. And the whole idea of checks and balances was to block this from ever happening. And here in Israel, we're seeing people like Naftali and, of course, our justices who keep arrogating to themselves more and more power from the executive and from the legislature, which we've talked about in previous episodes. That's one thing, and I just want to, you know, because we don't want to go over too much and we are supposed to be an hour and we're already a little bit over that. But the issue of the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, and this again sort of brings us back to the beginning of the Democrats and where the Americans are. I mean, I remember I was in this conference. Um, I don't know, Paris may have even organized it. I can't remember. It was something like very, like mainstream or whatever. And I was thinking, how, why would you invite Carolyn Glick? You guys hate me. But so I was happy to be there, but surprised that they invited me. And uh, so I'm sitting at this table with some, some more kind of center center right people um, whose names I won't give because why bother? And we're sitting there with uh, Richard Haas and some other sort of uh, con- what is it called? Conference of uh, Foreign Relations uh, uh, people or uh, and and uh, centrist Democrats, centrist Republicans from State Department. And this was during Obama's time. And, and we were talking to them. I mean, it was actually pretty unanimous on the Israeli side that we, some people were saying it politely. I was saying it in my inimitable fashion. <laughs> Uh, you know, but what in the hell are you thinking? Supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, right? And I think it was probably around the time of the uh, Arab Spring. Like, this—you guys are crazy. Like, th- these are crazy policies that you're advancing here. How can you do this? And I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood—that's the—that's the parent organization, not only of Hamas but of Al Qaeda and of all the pa- Pakistani jihadist organizations, of the Egyptian uh, Islamic Jihad, of the Islamic Jihad. You know, how can you do this? This is crazy. And they looked at us with these blank expressions on their faces like we were crazy, like there, there, there was something wrong with us. And, and again, this was a unanimous sense among the Israelis. And I was the I was the you know, the right right wing detritus of the Israeli side of the uh, conversation. Uh, but but I was not I mean, I may have been the most, most outspoken, but everybody agreed with me, you know, one hundred and fifty percent that 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 what the Americans were doing with the Muslim Brotherhood was crazy because it is crazy. And and the great tragedy is that, you know, I, I mean, I fell for it, too. Right. I mean, I I was thinking, let's have a right wing government for three months. Let's just, you know, promise them whatever and get Benny Gantz out of the Defense Department and this crazy dual two headed government that we're suffering from now that's paralyzing us. And if a boss wants to bring down the government, we still have three months till the next elections. And there's a lot of stuff that we can do. So the concept was that you don't pay a big price for it. You get minimal return, but it's a large enough return to make it worth your while. But you're right. I mean, as time goes by. And, and first of all, that was one deal. And that was basically what was on the table with Netanyahu. And here we are. I was I was consistently against and you this. were insistent yeah. and you were consistently uh, opposed to this, as was my newspaper Israel. Ayo. So, I mean, I was thinking of it more as an opportunistic thing. But but the truth is that I that that it is that it is. And I was also kind of under the spell of the Abraham Accords, thinking that uh, that Abbas uh, uh, Mansour Abbas, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood Party in the Knesset. And of course, it's insane that there even is a Muslim Brotherhood Party in the Knesset should never have been allowed to run. But that's that's a completely different discussion. But I thought that he was kind of an expression of of where the UAE and the Saudis are, as opposed to uh, where where uh, the Iranians and the Lebanese and and the Qataris are. So that was what. Was sort of at the heart of my thinking, but now we're seeing that that isn't even true. You know that Mansour Abbas is very much of the Muslim Brotherhood ilk of Hamas, and and all of the rest of them. And uh, and and it would have been one thing, and it probably would have been terrible. And as as we see all the time, it's set a terrible precedent that Netanyahu was willing to discuss it with him, and we're paying a price for that. And uh, and uh, that that's true. But when you when you join join together the the Israeli Muslim Brotherhood with the Israeli left, which is basically controlled by the American left and by these figures in the United States who have been pushing a pro-Muslim Brotherhood anti-Israel agenda since Obama came into office in 2009, then you really do have this noxious mix. And when you look and you see where the Democrat Party is today on Jews and on Jew haters, then it all comes together and we see that we really, you know, we have to, we, we have to be concerned about uh, the trajectory of this country and, and really of the, of the free world, you
1: know. Right on. But
0: the last thing that we'll say, the very, very last thing that we'll say before we say goodbye and subscribe to our channels and share this show with all of your friends and all that, the last thing that we're gonna say is that the polls are encouraging here in Israel and also in the United States when you look and you see the public's um, opposition to our our government and to the government and to the Biden administration, to the Democrats in Congress, et cetera, then you see that you know this will hopefully be a painful and very costly episode in our history. But that at the end of the day, you know we didn't get this far in order to throw it all away because some you know Madoff came in uh, in the United States and in Israel and stole our our democracy through various means that were untowards and wrong. And uh and so I, I think that you know the polls are encouraging and there they should be a reason for hope that, yeah, we're gonna pay a price for this huge thing that's happening now. But uh this isn't this is by no means the end of the story. And the fact that then that, that Naftali felt he had to go out against the The tweet, the Twitter people, me and you and our buddies in our closed little universe means that we're not such a closed universe and we are having an impact and speaking out and sharing our webcast and all the rest of it with you know you're nodding acquaintances all of this stuff is really important and so i'm glad to be back with you gadi i'm glad we we were and, done. And with also an opportunity holidays.
1: to thank you for coming up on my hebrew podcast because it's oh, important yeah, that was to fun. say these things to say these things to the hebrew public as well well A we pleasure.
0: have fun it's great all right see you guys next week subscribe share etc etc shalom, et et shalom. bye bye